Well, it is good to see everybody this morning. We're so grateful to have you here. Uh, welcome back to Community Church, as always. Uh, we're very glad to see you. I hope you had a great week. I hope you had a happy Thanksgiving. Everybody have a good Thanksgiving? All right. Well, that's awesome, because I have a public service announcement for you this morning. Um, it's now okay to start listening to Christmas music. <laughs> Thanksgiving has come and gone, and it's now okay. Just crank it up as loud as you can. It's all right. Uh, it's okay. Uh, but you can't do that before Thanksgiving. Right? I know last week I mentioned I thought about it. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. All right. I stuck to the protocol. All right. But I am ready for Christmas season. I'm ready for Christmas music. But talking about music, that got me to thinking, have you guys ever wondered what kind of music that the pilgrims had on that very first Thanksgiving morning? You ever wonder that? What kind of music were they listening to that first Thanksgiving th feast? Any idea? Turns out it was, what? Hymns? Hymns? Well, actually, it turns out it was Plymouth Rock. That's, huh? Right? Okay, all right. Well, how about this then? What do you get? <laughs> what do you get when you divide the circumference of a pumpkin by its diameter? Pie. What kind? Pumpkin. You got it. Pumpkin pie. That's awesome. Fantastic. Yes, for those of you who are wondering, I did find a great dad joke website. So pray for me, please. <laughs> But truly, we have so much to be thankful for, and we have a very great God to thank for it. There's no doubt about it. I hope your Thanksgiving was awesome. This morning, we're going to start chapter 12 in our verse-by-verse -verse study of the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to be focusing on the first 12 verses of that chapter. So you're welcome to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles if you would like to. That's Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. And uh, as you're turning there, I want to give you a heads up as to what's ahead for Community Church over the next few weeks as we are now fully into the holiday season and we're quickly coming up on the Christmas season as well. So things are going to be a little bit different over the next few weeks. Starting next week, we're going to hit the pause button on our study through the Gospel of Luke. And that's just for a bit. We'll pick this back up again at the first of the year or after the first of the year. But here's what the next five weeks are going to look like on Sunday mornings here at Community Church. Next week, Alex is going to be preaching from the book of Hosea, uh, chapter 6, and he's going to be preaching on the topic of rebellion versus repentance. And if you haven't seen any of his devotionals on Facebook, I would encourage you to look at some of those, um, because if you have, uh, certainly when he was studying through this book, then you know that the message next week is going to be good. So I hope you can be here for that. And then over the course of the following three weeks leading up to Christmas, I'm going to be teaching on the lives of Joseph and Mary and Jesus, of course, on Christmas morning. And then to ring in the new year, Alex is going to be bringing the word again, and mainly because I just want to stay up until midnight on Christmas Eve, and so I asked him to preach uh, the first of the year. So uh, just kind of halfway kidding about that. But a lot of stuff ahead uh, over the next few weeks, and we're looking forward to that. We will be having our night of remembrance as well coming up, and I'll keep you posted as we get closer to that. That's always a special night. I'm looking forward to that as well. But um, let's go ahead and get started with the word of prayer, and then we'll get into our text here this morning. Lord, we are grateful for the time together. Thank you for our special time of worship this morning, and uh, we're grateful now to just gather around your word and hear from you, to hear from your spirit. So please teach us today. Help us to learn. Help us to grow in our faith. Help us to 
grow in our understanding of what you're teaching us in this passage of Scripture today. And it's in Christ's name that we ask it. Amen. All right, so Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 1, it says, In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have spoken in the ear in inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after they have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins, and not one of them is forgotten before God, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Verse 8. Also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man will also confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. And then verse 11. Now when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. All right, so a pretty amazing and critical passage of Scripture here. You can find similar teachings from Christ if you would like to do a further study on this over in Matthew 10, Matthew 12, and Matthew 16. Mark will touch on some of these things in Mark chapter 3 and Mark 13. But Luke breaks down this passage like this. In the first 12 verses here of chapter 12, Christ gives three lessons to his disciples. Okay, in chapter or in verses 1 through 3, rather, Christ warns his disciples about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And then in verses 4 through 7, Christ teaches his disciples about the fear of God. And then down in verses 8 through 12, we see Christ comforting his disciples with the promise that the Holy Spirit will teach them. And of course, he's going to also teach about the dangers of not fearing God and rejecting the Holy Spirit. And so we'll get into all of that. But starting back at verse 1, in the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Okay, so the words in the meantime here would be while Jesus was emphatically condemning the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and scribes for their godless, empty religion. Okay, and as they were trying to ensnare Christ and cross-examine him about many things. We've seen that in verse 53. So during that time, a crowd had gathered, right? But of course, Christ knew that the religious opposition of his day, they would be lying in wait for him. We saw that in verse 42. They would be hoping to catch him in something that he might say so that they could accuse him and hurt his influence and so on. Ultimately, they would hope to bring down his ministry. But at this time, Christ's ministry was booming. It was growing. It was almost had reached a pinnacle, you could say, right? I mean, people were gathering to hear him in so many numbers. As Luke writes, it was impossible to count them all. So there was a lot of people here. It was almost like a mob in that people were even trampling on one another, the word says. So think about that. Let's put this in perspective here. I mean, in today's world, 
It's preaching that's light on sin and a preaching that has a complete misunderstanding of biblical love that attracts all the crowds, isn't it? It's interesting. But here we see that the straightforward, unapologetic preaching of Jesus Christ, well, that drew quite a crowd as well, didn't it? And of course, no doubt, there's no doubt some of these people were just there for the miracles. I'm sure about that. But I just pray that someday soon people will begin to realize the emptiness of a watered down gospel, that they would realize the emptiness of a legalistic religion and come gather around the truth of Christ as proclaimed in the scriptures. Right? Because refusing to preach about sin, refusing to preach about judgment, like we see so often today, is no better than laying burden after burden upon people in a pious religion like we've seen in the day of Christ. One of them says, you know what, you better be sure and do all the right things. Okay, that's legalism. That's religion. Right? While the other one says, you know what, it doesn't matter what you do. That's the flip side of that coin. So the pendulum has swung too far in the other direction, hasn't it? But the truth of Christ, that's what I love about it. It's one of the many things, obviously, but the truth of Christ will always bring us back to the center, okay? It will calibrate our moral compass for us, which is to say it will bring us back to the cross of Christ. And the cross of Christ is what's going to do that because the cross of Christ is absolutely central to the understanding of the love and the justice of a holy God, right? It's central to a correct understanding that will lead us back to true north as it comes to understanding the scriptures. And so those hopefully who are fed up with a burdensome religion, one that says do this, do that in order to earn favor with God. Hopefully those who are fed up with the hollowness of a a religion that says it doesn't matter what you do, right? It has an unbiblical idea of love. Hopefully these people will begin to find hope in the cross of Jesus Christ where they can find conviction and comfort. Think about it. Only the cross can do that. Only the cross can convict our hearts and comfort it at the same time. But our human tendency is to either want to appease the crowd for popularity's sake or to fear the crowd for protection's sake. That's our human tendency, right? So Christ is warning his disciples here against both of them, right? We are to speak the truth and we're to live by the truth regardless of how popular it is without fearing what man can do to us. Because as Warren Wiersbe said, he said, the snare of popularity and the fear of man has brought to ruin more than one servant of God. And that is so true. But as we talked about last week, about how Christ had warned these Pharisees about their own religion. And so now he turns to his disciples first before addressing the crowd. And he warns them about the religion of the Pharisees. And he compares it to leaven. So what's leaven? Well, the Bible actually has a lot to say about leaven, and some believe that leaven at times in Scripture actually represents the gospel, okay? And they will point to the parable of the leaven that we see in Matthew 13, and we're going to get to it shortly in Luke 13. Okay, this is where Christ compared the kingdom of heaven to a woman who hid the leaven in three measures of meal. Okay, And these folks will tell you that the leaven actually represents the gospel and the meal represents the world. But of course, that view does not square with the rest of Scripture. And I'll show you. We see leaven represented as evil all throughout the Scriptures. 
We see it in Mark 8. We see it in 1 Corinthians 5 and Galatians 5, not to mention right here in our passage today. And of course, we're going to talk more about this when we get to Luke 13. But the leaven in that parable, even in that parable, is representative of sin as well, not the gospel. Okay, It's representative of sin that has permeated the kingdom of God. Okay, It was hidden by the woman, right? That's what the scripture says. And we know that as believers, we're to walk in the light. We're not to walk over in the shadows. Okay, in other words, righteousness in Christ never has to be hidden. Right? And of course, Christ is going to teach us about hidden things in the next verse. But leaven is never, ever mentioned as a good thing in the scriptures. So leaven is literally yeast. Okay, we know that that has to be put into the bread. But the spiritual application here is that leaven represents Sin. Again, I would direct your attention to 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8 and Galatians chapter 5, verse 9 for a further example on that. But every Jew during this time would have known this. I want you to listen to Exodus chapter 12, verses 15 through 20. Now, this was when the Passover was instituted. Okay, it says this, For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you a memorial. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove the leaven even from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Wow, okay, so the leaven is to actually even be kept out of the bread, but also the house, okay? Which would remind Israel that all those who have been redeemed by blood, right? The blood on the doorpost at the Passover, this would remind them that they are to leave that world of sin, Egypt, behind. Okay, and so the Feast of Unleavened Bread is to be an everlasting ordinance of that reminder. Okay, and all of this is a foreshadow, of course, of Christ and what he has done for us. And now Christ has come. Now Christ is on the scene as the sinless, unleavened bread of life. Right? So... Of course, he's going to shed his own blood to cover the sins of all those who would repent of their sins and trust in Christ by faith, thereby making it possible for the holy wrath of the Father to pass over them and making it possible for believers to actually leave our old life of sin behind. It's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing because the leaven has been taken out of the bread, so to speak, right? Listen to how Paul says all of this. Maybe it'll begin to click a little bit better. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. He says, Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. 
You see, the perfect blood of Jesus Christ, okay, the sinless bread of life was sacrificed, his body and his blood, right? So that we can escape the wrath of God. Christ, again, is our Passover. And believers celebrate this fact every time we take communion, for example. Okay, the blood and the bread, right? The perfect sacrificed life of Christ has taken our sin, as Paul said, our malice and wickedness, and given us sincerity and truth. Thank you, Lord. Now, how all of this relates to our discussion here at hand in Luke is like this. Okay, the, the Pharisees, the leaven of the Pharisees is, of course, their hypocrisy, right? But more specifically, listen to this. Christ is referring to their doctrine, okay? Listen to how Matthew puts it in Matthew 16, 12. He says, then they, meaning Christ's disciples, understood that he, Christ, did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So Jesus is saying, look, their doctrine is hypocritical. They're actors. They're just pretending over there, right? And as I said last week, Christless religion, all Christless religions are breeding grounds for pride. Why? Why would that be? Well, I like how Wearsby put it. He said, hypocrisy does to the ego what yeast does to the bread. It puffs it up. And that's exactly right. Right? So we should all try our best to avoid pretending, to avoid hypocritical doctrine, and so on and so on, because I know I'm susceptible to that. You are susceptible to that. We all are. We're susceptible to becoming actors ourselves. Right? So we just got to be honest about this. I mean, we pretend that everything's all right when it's really not. Right? What's the first thing someone says to you on Sunday morning? How you doing? Then what do you say? Fine. <laughs> We're good at this. I mean, we can pretend to be even be more spiritual than we really are if we think about it at times too, right? So we got to be careful here to keep the leaven out of the bread and just trust in the finished work of the sinless Son of God for our salvation because the truth is, and this is a hard truth to swallow, but it's true. As Christians, we have earned the reputation of faking it. We've earned the reputation at times of being hypocritical. If you ask a lost person out there why they don't come to church, the number one reason will be because it's just hypocrites there, right? And so we have to be careful. We need to get that corrected. Verse 2, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. So the religious elites, they had taken away the key of knowledge. Remember that, verse 52. But everything they hid from the people will one day be made known. As Pastor David Guzik said, the art of being a hypocrite depends on concealment. But the reality here is there's no cover-ups in the kingdom of God. There will be no cover-ups, right? Every heart will stand completely exposed before his throne. Every heart. One day, every mask is coming off, right? And every secret will be told. Verse 3, therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light. And what you have spoken in the ear and inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. All right, so notice the contrast here. Notice how leaven or sin is hidden, but the truth of God or light is not hidden at all. You see, sin will always lead you into the shadows. Sin will lead you into the dark, into the secret rooms, the inner rooms, right? But the truth of God will light up the darkness, and it will expose all of that, and it will be proclaimed from the top of the house, because truth has nothing to hide. 
Absolutely nothing to hide. Therefore, how does truth speak? It speaks outside. And it speaks out loud, doesn't it? Not into inner rooms or into inner ears, for example. The truth is bold and it's outside and it's out loud. Now, some believe here that Christ is referring to um, sort of the worldwide, the coming worldwide proclamation of the gospel, okay? Here in verse 3, that's what some would say. You know, this will be the time when he sends his disciples, he sends the Holy Spirit, and then they go out into the world, etc. I don't think that's what Christ is referring to here personally. I tend to believe that this is just a continuation of the thoughts that we see in verse 2, where Christ is speaking of the coming day when truth, right, the light of Christ is going to expose the darkness of sin. Okay? I think that's what he's talking about here. So again, we got to be careful because he's going to expose the sin in the hearts of all those who reject Christ because there's not going to be any fake in it when we stand in judgment before God. It'll be impossible to fake it. The light will expose the darkness. It will expose our secrets, and all of that's going to be made public. Here's the deal. Christ is going to expose the face behind the mask. That's what we're looking here, looking at here. Verse 4, And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. So a leading cause of hypocrisy is misplaced fear of man. Okay, it's fear that's been misplaced. I mean, fear will make those who don't have a strong relationship with Christ do things that they wouldn't normally do. Okay? Anybody remember 2020, for example? Now, I'm, I'm going to say some things here coming up that um, some of you might take offense to, uh, might be controversial. I don't know. I just pray that you can hear my heart. Okay, this morning, please hear my heart. Stay with me until the end, all right? Um, but hear me out. In 2020, in as little as two to three weeks into the pandemic, say a month to be generous, okay? We knew most of the dangers of COVID. We knew those who were at the greatest risk, and yet many churches remained closed for months after month, right? Which to me is a direct contradiction of the Word of God. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. It explicitly says, now one of the things back in that time was, well, you got to look out for other people. we got to be conscious of other people. I get that. I agree with that. But listen to Hebrews 10, 25, which was written in the context of considering other people. It says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Right. And by the way, the day mentioned here in Hebrews 10.25 is the exact same day Jesus is referring to here in our text this morning. It's the day when all of the actors will be busted out. It's judgment day. That's what he's talking about here. Now, again, I'm certainly not trying to call out my brothers and sisters in the Lord for being prudent. Not at all. Please don't misunderstand me, right? Prudence is a good thing. Okay, we must be prudent. But do we not think that God was aware of COVID? Yeah, of course he was. And yet even now, more than two years after the fact, when most, if not all, of the critical science is in, all right, and we know that the shots are not near as effective as they said they would be. And we know that they are way more dangerous to some people than they said they would be. We know that masks were never as effective as they said they would be. But still today, either out of fear or out of purposes of control, 
They still demand that people inject medicine into their bodies and cover their faces with masks. Misplaced fear. That's all that is. Now, you can totally disagree with me on these issues. I'm good with that. We can still be friends, I promise you. We can still be friends because I do not care if you got vaccinated or not. I do not care if you wear a mask. I really don't. I don't care about that. I'm just saying, don't let fear guide your philosophy on these things. Don't let misplaced fear guide your philosophy on these issues. Listen to what the Bible says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. It says, Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Amen. Right? So Christians are not to be guided by the philosophy or principles of the world, are we? No, we're to walk by faith. We're to be guided by the light of Christ as found within his word. Not to mention the light of truth is now beginning to shine on all of these hidden agendas that were out there, all of those who intended to strike fear in people, etc. Guys, hypocrisy is a sin because it is lying to accomplish a purpose. That's what it does. And I'll leave the rest of it to you to speculate further on the whole COVID debacle, right? I'll leave all the rest of that to you because, again, I really, don't, I really do not care where you come down on these issues at all. I still love you. I do. I love you. And Christ still loves you. We can disagree on these things and still be friends and still fellowship. It's all right. And I know it probably sounds like I'm trying to be political here. I'm really not. Not that I think that's a bad thing from the pulpit, by the way, right? But I'm not. I don't care about your politics either. I really don't. Please hear my heart because I'm, I don't want to be insensitive because that was a tough time in our history. I know there was many people who, who lost loved ones, either you know, due to COVID, whether in part or in whole. Right? I know that there were many people who actually lost friends or loved ones due to the vaccines, whether in part or in whole. So what I'm saying has absolutely nothing to do with masks, vaccines, or COVID. All right? but it has everything to do with fear being used as a manipulator to get people to do things they wouldn't normally do. Okay, it's misplaced fear. That's what we're talking about. What I care about is pointing people to the right fear. That's what I care about. I care about speaking the truth of God's word into our culture, just like Christ is doing right here in our passage today. That's all I'm trying to do. Because a Christless religion... Again, which is any belief system apart from Christ, it will lie to you and it will puff itself up and pretend to be something that it's not. Okay, in other words, the leaven is still in the bread. The leaven is still in the bread, but it's hidden. So you got to be careful. Let's heed the words of Christ here, along with the wise words of Solomon, who said this in Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Amen. So now Christ continues his teaching here to his disciples, and he calls them my friends. Did you see that? So here we get a glimpse of the fate of all of those people who are going to carry the message of the gospel into the world. Remember, all of Christ's disciples, save John, are going to be killed for the gospel. They're going to be killed for the gospel. That is, their body will be killed in a way, right? And of course, Christ himself is going to suffer at the hands of men as well. But I want you to notice that this is all presented to them as encouragement. <laughs> Did you see that? Because what else can an angry Pharisee do to a gospel-preaching disciple of Christ than just kill their body? That's it. That's all they can do. 
Remember, religion can only put you in the grave. That's it. Religion can only put you in the grave, but a relationship with Jesus Christ by grace through faith will take you beyond the grave. It will take you beyond the grave. Religion can only put a, a tombstone over a dead man's bones, but a relationship with Christ will raise those bones from the dead and give you an empty tomb. But unfortunately, too many people fail to think about death. Have you noticed that? There's a lot of folks who just won't even go there with you. They don't want to think about death. More specifically, they won't, don't want to think about what happens the moment after you die, right? And we know that death is coming. Death is coming for each and every one of us if Christ doesn't come first. So the question is, then what? That's the question we all need to be asking, right? Death is coming, so no need to ignore it. Then what? Right? Look at verse 5. But I'll show you to whom you should fear. Fear him who after he has killed has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. So shame on all those preachers out there who have stopped preaching about hell. Because what you've done is essentially removed the very most important warning sign that we have this side of heaven. The fear of God casting me into hell. I should be afraid of that. Right? I want you to see the word hell. It literally means Gehenna. That's the word that's used here. This was a literal place. Luke is referring to a literal place that was located just south of Jerusalem outside of the city limits. Okay, And it was originally known as the Valley of Hinnom. Okay? And it had become sort of a city dump. This is where they took all of their garbage out and set it on fire. But also in history, and you can read about this in the Old Testament, this was also the exact same place where people sacrificed children to the false god of Moloch. You know any countries today that are sacrificing children? I know at least one. But if you want to read about this place, the Valley of Hinnom, the place what Jesus calls hell, you can read about it in 2 Chronicles 28, Jeremiah 7, Jeremiah 19, or Jeremiah 32. In other words, Jesus compares hell to a place that is, one, outside of the city of God, Okay, Jerusalem is the city of God. This place is outside of that. And two, it is on fire with the garbage of sin. Mm. That should definitely get our attention. Because those who either fake their religion or who flat out reject Christ will one day find themselves there. That's the reality. Guys, this verse tells us that all of us, each and every one of us are eternal beings. Okay, Every soul will exist beyond the grave. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 says, and as it is appointed to men to die once, but after this, the judgment, there's the answer to then what? There's our answer. We live, we die, then we are judged. Okay, that's the then what? Don't miss who does the killing here either. Did you see that in the verse? Jesus said after he, meaning God the Father, has killed he has the power to cast into hell. See, we need to understand that all of our days have been ordained by God. All of our days are ordained by God. That's Psalm 139.16. So God is both the giver and the taker of life. We need to understand that that breath that you just took into your lungs, the breath I just took into my lungs, is a gift of God. Right? It's a gift of God. We have no idea what the number of our days is. Nobody does. So we shouldn't delay our repentance toward God because all of our efforts to be healthy and so on, and I'm not saying just trash your body, right? It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. Take care of it. But our efforts to live longer and longer and longer and longer, look, God has ordained the days of our life. 
Okay, None of us have any idea when death is coming, but we know it's coming. And God certainly knows when that is. And so when death comes, there's not going to be any more room for repentance at all. There's only going to be judgment. Okay, We live, we die, then what? Judgment. That's what. But here's the good news. All right, Here's the good news. And this is why the fear of God is the only legitimate fear. Because the fear of God, it will conquer all of those other fears that we might have. Absolutely. Believers in Jesus Christ do not fear death. At least we shouldn't, right? Listen to Proverbs chapter 14, verse 27. It says, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, right? Fear equals life when you fear the right thing, right? When you fear God, you get life. He continues, to turn one away from the snares of death. We don't have to fear death, right? It does not ensnare us because Christ gives us life beyond the grave. Listen to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. It says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, meaning Christ, likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those, get this, who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Wow. Guys, do not fear death. Believer, do not fear death. Do not fear the devil. Do not fear disease. Do not fear what man can do to you. Don't fear anything in this world. The only fear you and I should have as believers in Jesus Christ is the fear of the God who made us. That's it. The fear of the God who numbered our days and will determine where we spend eternity. That's a good place to put your fear right there. Author Michael Reeves wrote this. He said, How easily we can mistake the reality of the fear of God for an outward and hollow show. As Martin Luther put it, to fear God is not merely to fall upon your knees. Even a godless man and a robber can do that. He says, but scripture presents the fear of God as a matter of the heart's inclination. That's a great point. He's exactly right. Fear is a matter of the heart's inclination. So the question now becomes, what are the inclinations of my heart? All right. Where do I place my fear? Well, next, Christ tells us the value of a heart that is inclined toward him. Look at verse 6. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins, and not one of them is forgotten before God? All right, so a copper coin in that day was worth about one-sixteenth of a denarius. A denarius is a day's wage. And in Matthew chapter 10, verse 29, we read that actually two sparrows were sold for one copper coin. But here, five are sold for two copper coins. So think about that, right? Essentially, if you buy four, you get one free. Okay, that's basically what's going on here. But I want you to listen to this great observation from William MacDonald. He points out a a really interesting thing here. He writes, to emphasize God's protective interests in the disciples, the Lord Jesus mentioned the Father's care for sparrows. Matthew 10, 29, we read that two sparrows are sold for one copper coin. Here we learn that five sparrows are sold for two copper coins. We just talked about that, right? Here's his take. It's fantastic. He says, in other words, an extra sparrow is thrown in free when four are purchased, and yet not even this odd sparrow, the one with no commercial value, is forgotten in the sight of God. Isn't that awesome? He said, if God cares for that odd sparrow the one with no commercial value, how much more does he watch over those who go forth with the gospel of his son? 
Amen. Great point. Guys, you are not forgotten. Believer, you are not alone. Absolutely. And you are not worthless. Never, ever think that. Christ died for you. Verse 7. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are more you are of more value than many sparrows. So here we see the value and the importance of God's children. Okay, I mean, if he values a sparrow, right, with no monetary value whatsoever, the extra one, then of course, he's going to value his children. How much more would he value his children? And if he knows and he cares about the hairs on our head, would he not know and care about the problems that we have in our life? Of course he does. But I want you to look here because... Christ is not talking about some general type of love, just a a general love. That's not the idea here. This kind of love right here really gets down to the details. Look at what the word says. The hairs on our head are all numbered, right? In other words, he doesn't count them. He's already numbered them. He's already numbered them. Guys, we are intimately known by our creator, intimately known, and we are infinitely loved by Christ our Savior. Therefore, verse 8, also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man also will confess before the angels of God. Yeah, so now Christ brings the crowd into the teaching, into this truth here. And he says words like whoever, right here in verse 8. He's going to use a word like anyone down in verse 10, okay? So he was bringing the crowd into the teaching, but to confess Christ means to receive him as your Lord and Savior. Listen to Romans 10, 9. It says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's a promise. So confession is the belief in your heart coming to light, isn't it? It's no longer hidden. It's public. It's publicly proclaimed, right? We are to confess Christ before men. You know, before coming to Christ um, myself, I would have told you straight up that I believed in God. That's what I would have said, okay? But I would have told you it's personal. You know, if you would have tried to have a conversation with me about Christ or something, I'd be like, ah, I believe in God, but it's personal, right? You see, I didn't know the whole truth. I, I had no idea about that. Because while salvation, yes, in and of itself is indeed very personal, it is never private. It's never Private. So the reality of what Christ is teaching us here is that those who will not confess Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior right now, publicly, in this life, will not hear their name confessed by Christ among the hosts of heaven. They're going to be left outside of the city of God, right? In that place called hell. That's frightening. However, those who do confess Christ, listen to what the Apostle Paul has to say here. It's Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read the first 11 verses, a little bit longer portion of Scripture, but it's the Word of God. It's worth hearing. Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation. He's talking about all those who have repented of their sins and trusted in Christ by faith and confessed Christ as their Lord and Savior. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on the account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. 
For those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor can indeed be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Then verse 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he's not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. Who cares if they kill a dead body? Right? But the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Amen. Amen. Guys, that's the promise that you have as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's resurrection life. Verse 9. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. All right, so clearly this is simple. Anyone who denies Christ in this life, Christ will deny in the next. Okay, this is another picture of life beyond the grave for a non-believer. Verse 10, and anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. All right, so here we've finally gotten to the unforgiven sin. This is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, right? And in both Matthew and Mark's Gospels, this is said in the context of Christ's teaching on a house that's divided. Right? You can see that in Matthew 12 and Mark 3. Because the Pharisees, what they had done was accuse Christ of casting out demons, but by the spirit of Satan. Remember that? In fact, in Mark 3.30, they said that he, Christ himself, had an unclean spirit. So in context, that right there is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That's what that means. Okay? The accusation of the Pharisees or from the Pharisees that Christ had an unclean spirit uh, was the... Uh, the blasphemy, right? So in making this accusation, they had essentially rejected Christ. They'd rejected, rejected rather, the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. They had already rejected the message. They had already rejected the miracles, uh, which all attested to him being the Messiah. And now, because of that, they are subject to eternal condemnation by their blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, that's unless they change their mind, unless they repent, right, before they die. But these people had given credit to the devil for the miracles of Christ. And so again, those who reject the message of Christ, the one that the prophets foretold about, Luke eleven forty seven through 50, have also rejected the miracles of Christ, Luke eleven fifteen, And therefore now they're rejecting the Messiah of God. That's Luke twelve ten in our passage today. Because by rejecting the Holy Spirit of God in Christ who is the Son of God, they are blaspheming His Holy Spirit. That's how that works. Because why? Because the Spirit of Christ is in the message. That's Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, and down in verse 16. The Spirit of Christ is in the miracles. That's Matthew 12, 28. The Spirit of Christ, of course, is in the Messiah, Matthew 1, 18. And so all those who have rejected Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior have also blasphemed, which, by the way, that word just means to revile, or to speak against, or to speak evil of. So all of those who have blasphemed the Holy Spirit, if they do not repent of their sins, 
and confess Christ before they die, they will have committed the sin that is unforgiven. Okay? And that's because there is no forgiveness beyond the grave, just judgment, right? I want to point out something else here that's very important. We need to understand this. The unforgiven sin cannot be committed by a believer. Okay? That's John 3.36. It says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. Right? You believe in Jesus? You've repented of your sins? You've confessed Him publicly? You have everlasting life. You don't have temporary life that just takes you to the grave. You have everlasting life that takes you beyond the grave. Right? That's what the Word of God says. He who believes in the Son has it has everlasting life. And he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. You see, we're all under the holy wrath of God, right? And only those who die in their unbelief without ever coming to Christ by faith, repenting of their sins and so forth, will have committed the sin that cannot be forgiven, all right? All of us are under the holy wrath of God until we come to Christ by faith. Those who do not do that remain under the wrath of God. Because upon death, there is no more opportunity for either repentance or forgiveness. Okay, conversion must happen in this life. Just like Christ told Nicodemus in John 3, you must be born again. That's what he told him. And there's absolutely no biblical support, okay, none, for people praying other people into heaven once they die. Okay, don't buy into that. It's not biblical. Eternity is where we're going to experience the result of either being converted in this life or remaining unconverted. Okay? Eternity equals the result of that. Listen to what Ironside wrote. He said, To blaspheme against the Holy Ghost in that age was to refuse to accept the Holy Ghost's witness to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same today. The one sin that never can be forgiven is the final rejection of the Holy Ghost testimony to the Lord Jesus. If you reject Christ, there is nothing else for you but judgment. He's exactly right. Guys, every sin, every sin that we commit was atoned for at the cross of Christ. Okay? And he sent his Holy Spirit to bear witness of that fact. And therefore, if we reject the Holy Spirit, if we reject the Holy Spirit's witness of Christ, then there is no forgiveness for that. In other words, there's no lack of supply for atonement. Okay, the atoning blood of Christ, there's no lack of supply of that, but it's only going to be applied to those who repent, those who do not remain under the wrath of God. So we must confess Christ in this life as our Lord and Savior, right? I mean, as Jesus said, even a flat-out rejection of him is not in and of itself unforgivable. Christ said that. So long as the person who rejects him repents and puts their faith in Christ before they die. Okay? So essentially, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is this. It's dying in your sin. It's rejecting Christ unto death. That's what that is. And so therefore, you remain under the holy wrath of God by refusing to receive Christ as your savior. Now, as this relates to Israel, they rejected the message of Christ, Luke 11, 49 and 50. They rejected the person of Christ. We'll see that in Luke 23, 21. And ultimately, they're going to reject the spirit of Christ too. You can see that in Acts 7, 51. But God, in his infinite grace, he's not done with the nation of Israel. 
Listen to Romans 11.23. It says, And they also, talking about the Jews, if they do not continue in unbelief, they'll be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. Amen. Guys, this ought to give us hope. This ought to give each and every one of us hope. I mean, if we're above ground and breathing this morning, right, we have hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. If we turn to him in repentance and faith, we will be saved. Verse 11. Now, when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say. All right. So the word for answer here is where we get our word apologetics. It means to give a defense. Okay, so Christ, it's important that we understand here, Christ is not giving us an excuse to stop reading our Bibles. Okay, he's not saying that. He's not saying, hey, I'm going to reward your laziness with a miracle. He's not saying that. This is a promise of help to all those who will be persecuted for Christ. Okay, he's saying, you know what? In that hour of persecution, you don't have to be a scholar. Okay, in that hour, you just trust in the Holy Spirit to guide your thoughts as you speak. In other words, don't be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. We should notice here where this persecution is coming from because I think that's very interesting. Persecution is coming from religion. That's the synagogues. Persecution is coming from civic society. That's the magistrates. And that's because biblical Christianity upsets both of these kinds of people. Those who trust in their legalistic religion, those who trust in their government, all of those people tend to have a problem with those who trust in Christ and his word. And of course, Christ is going to be a perfect model of this type of persecution all the way to his cross. I mean, he experienced all of this. But we also see it in other places. We see it in the lives of his disciples all throughout the book of Acts. We've seen it all across the, the globe, really, and all throughout human history. And believe it or not, we are seeing it today in America. Okay? It's not coming. It's here. Right? Biblical Christianity, guys, is the only faith that's refused a seat at the table of public debate and public discourse. Right here, today. And that's because these pseudo-religious people and the magistrates of our day hope to cancel biblical Christianity completely. So here's the deal. When hate speech becomes a real crime here in America, and I expect that it will, then many of us pastors are going to be afforded the great privilege of starting a prison ministry. That's not uncommon for biblical Christianity, is it? It's uncommon for America, but it's happened all throughout history. Believers who are unafraid of what the world might say or do, continued to preach the truth of God, even in chains. Verse 12, For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. It's exactly right, and we have biblical precedent for this as well. Think about Moses. Even Paul, right? They both had trouble speaking. You can see that in Exodus 4.10 and 1 Corinthians 2, chapter one, or verse 1. But we also see it in many different places where God empowered his people to speak the truth in the very hour that they needed to. For example, Peter and the eleven, they all stood up, the word says, for Christ at Pentecost. That's Acts 2.14. We remember Paul and Barnabas, they grew bold in their message in the synagogue in Antioch. They spoke boldly again at Iconium as well, Acts 14.3. 
So I think this should be encouragement for all of us today, all believers today, that the Holy Spirit of God inside of us will teach us and he will empower us to speak the truth of God to the world around us, regardless of how grave our situation might become, right? Even in the worst of circumstances, the Holy Spirit of God will teach us what we need to say in that hour. The Holy Spirit of God, believer, will not abandon you. He will never abandon you. He will teach you. So here's the deal. As a church, let's be teachable. Let's listen to the Holy Spirit. Let's trust it. Let's trust our Lord. God, the Holy Spirit, let's trust him. Let's be teachable. That requires humility, doesn't it? Let's be faithful. Let's be unafraid. Let's be courageous Christians who speak the truth in love, of course, but don't back down from a culture that hates God. Let's continue to speak the truth of God. Let's avoid the hypocrisy of our day and continue to speak the truth of God into our culture. Man, it needs it, right? Let's fear God. Let's not fear man. Let's confess Christ. The world around us needs the gospel of Jesus Christ, and God has called us to bring it to them. That's our job. So we can do that with the hope that we have in the scriptures that the Holy Spirit will tell us what we need to know in that hour, and that the confidence that we have in Christ is that he will empower us to be the church that he's called us to be. Right? So let's do that. Let's be the church that God has called us to be. Let's not let our fear be misplaced. Let's fear God and confess Christ and be the church. Lord, we love you and thank you so much for the word of God. Thank you for your scriptures that are true front to back. We thank you, Lord, for what you have taught us today. And I just pray, Lord, that your spirit would continue to minister to us in a way that we can understand your word clearly, in a way that we need to be convicted, in a way that we need to be comforted, whatever we need today. Through this teaching and through your spirit, you can provide that. And so I just pray that you would do that. Help us to uh, sort of marinate on these scriptures throughout the course of the week. Help us to think about them, what they matter to us, where is our fear really placed, things like that. Lord, would you just continue to do your work within our hearts throughout the course of the week? My prayer this morning as well is if anyone hears this message today and they don't have a relationship with you, that that would change even today that they would turn from their sin, they would repent and put their faith in Christ Jesus, believing that he's the son of God who died on the cross for their sins and rose again the third day so that they could have eternal hope in Christ as their Lord and Savior and that they would confess that. I pray that people would receive the Holy Spirit today by faith and be saved. I pray, Lord, that you would help your church to not fear what man could do, but keep our fear rightly placed and the one who can not only take our life, but cast us into hell. Help us to fear God. Because we know as believers, you've already told us in your word, that fear, Proverbs, leads to life. So Lord, we thank you for that. Because you have given us eternal life. And it was the fear of God, the fear of your wrath, that personally affected me and led me to the cross of Christ. I did not want to spend an eternity in hell. I did not want to spend my eternity outside of the city of God. So, Lord, I pray that that truth, that reality, 
would spark conviction in all the hearts of those who don't know you and they would repent even today and come to faith in Christ so that they can have eternal life, as John said, everlasting life, life that goes well beyond the grave all throughout eternity. We love you, Lord. Thank you so much for all that you've done through your cross. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.